The following is Voices of Experience radio show and podcast. No promotional fees are paid by authors or other guests who appear on the show. If you have comments or suggestions, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. Welcome to Voices of Experience on KIXI AM 880 and KKNW 1150 AM. It is simulcast. The magic of radio continues. My name is Paul Casey, your host, and um, we have Eric Ryder here today. Good afternoon, Eric. How are you? Hey, good afternoon, Paul. It's a beautiful day up here, so hopefully a beautiful day where you're at. Yes, we are in Palm Springs, and um, it is a beautiful day, but windy. And uh, last night, though, we had a windstorm. It got up to, I'm going to estimate, about 50-mile-an-hour winds. Wow. A lot of rain. And uh, But I know when I talk about weather down here, oh, it's chilly. It's like 62 degrees today. <laughs> I'm not going to get a lot of sympathy with the audience up there. So I don't want to make people mad and just say, suck it up, buddy, and, and go. Because I know you had some pretty inclement weather the last couple of days. Um, some thunder, lightning, and a little snow. And... It, it got a little stormy here for a little bit, but uh, we seem to be back to back to regular February weather, I guess. You know, kind of cool, but uh, still lots of sunshine, so not, well, not complaining. Here. May the sun keep shining up there. I know there's a better saying than that, but I uh, hope that things go well. And uh, love it down here, but I certainly miss Seattle as well. And the greater Puget Sound region, because that's where this show goes to all around the Puget Sound region. So um, that's important, very important as well. Now, going into something that's uh, on today, we do have a real variety of of guests today. And one starting out is, after the voices in history, will be former state senator, King County Superior Court judge and founder of Judges for Justice, Mike Heavey. And uh, we're going to talk about thousands of wrongful convictions In the United States, it's occurred over the last half a century, and they include felonies and capital convictions. I've asked the question before, how does this happen? I realize there's going to be mistakes in the judicial system, but what caught me is how many there are, thousands, and we'll get into that today. And uh, Mike Heavey did this um, special of a murder that happened in Hawaii in 1991, and he's been a pit bull on this for years. And I interviewed him several years ago about this. And he was talking about this wrongful conviction. And it came out last month that the persons or persons who were accused of doing this crime, thanks to people like uh, Mike Heavey, they were exonerated and released from jail these many years later. So that's why I think it's a very important topic for us to talk about. Also today, Voices in History. On this day in 1903, an inventor placed two stuffed bears in his shop window. The rest, as they say, is history. Any idea, Eric? 
<laughs> uh, that's that's a hard one. I mean, that's yeah. not a lot of shopkeeper places some teddy bears in his window. Um, I, what did you just say? You just said teddy bears. <laughs> yes. Let's that that is part of it. We'll move okay. on. Okay. Okay. Yeah, without knowing it, you just uh, kind of let uh, the cat out of the bag or the bears out of the bag there. So anyhow, we'll return to that a little later. Timeless classics for today. 1967, this song was released. It did not do well in the United States at that time. And um, the reason was a record producer didn't like the song. So he didn't promote it. It was re-released in 1988, the backdrop of a movie, or one of the songs in the movie, Good Morning Vietnam. Then it became one of the biggest hits in the history of music, and it still is. And I think that people will be very gratified that uh, the producers and the writers of Good Morning Vietnam put this song in, because everyone's going to recognize it. And then we have Pat Cashman returning today. He's got a segment called Just Saying. And today he wanted to talk about how to conduct the perfect interview. I'm going to play his um, uh, just saying what he thinks and how you do it the best. I've heard it, and I've got to say that uh, I'm glad I listened to it. But, um, yeah, it's a very interesting way. But what I found out, Pat, it's based on your experience, what you sent me. It's what not to do in an interview. But, of course, it's Pat Cashman. And, uh, again, he hosts a podcast with Lisa Foster called Peculiar Podcast. Every couple of weeks or so, great podcast. Another interview with an Alicia Miranda. She took a year off to follow her passion to step out of her comfort zone, and she wrote a book called My What If Year. So find out how it went for her. She had some good things that happened, and she had some real struggles and a big surprise when uh, on her first week of um, her uh adventure. So Voices of Experience, what is this about? We talk with people with experience in public affairs, travel, fitness, education, entertainment, and with an emphasis on entrepreneurship. And uh, if there's anything you'd like to hear about this show that um, you'd like to comment on or anything you'd like us to talk about, call the Voices of Experience Message Center at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653- 1166. Voices in History coming up next. All right, so we're back, uh, Voices of Experience, and this is Voices in History. And um, let's start with today. This would be February 15th, 1903. And we'll start out, Eric, with your guess here. Toy store owner and inventor Morris Mitch Tom placed two stuffed bears in his shop window, advertising them as teddy bears. That's right. He had petitioned President Theodore Roosevelt for permission to use the nickname Teddy. The president agreed, and soon it became a national childhood institution, and it still is. So there you go. I'm surprised they didn't give the bears like a mustache, though. No, what's that? Oh, did they? No, that's a. We need to get a research department on that, <laughs> right? You know, you if know, it's I named mean, after Teddy Roosevelt. Serious was. stuff. When we're talking about yeah. you know wrongful convictions, I mean, yeah. Did the teddy bear start with a mustache? <laughs> it should have, is what I'm saying. Okay, it should have. All right, maybe it did. 
And we'll find that out. So on February 15, 1933, President-elect Roosevelt escaped an assassination attempt in Miami. An unemployed bricklayer shouts, to many, too many people are starving, and fires a gun at Roosevelt. He had just delivered a speech in Miami's Bayfront Park from the backseat of his open touring car. Five people were hit. President escaped injury, but the mayor of Chicago, Anton Cermak, died in the attack. It was reported at the time that Roosevelt's composure during the assassination attempt enforced his image as a very strong leader. I mean, he wasn't even president yet when that happened. And the irony is, is that Roosevelt was more sympathetic to the plight of the people who were underprivileged than anybody in starting all those great programs. I wonder what would have happened had it gone differently, but really very happy historically it did not. On February 16, 1968, the first official 911 call is placed in the United States. I didn't know it was that old. On February 18, 1885, Mark Twain publishes his controversial novel, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And on February 18, 1930, Pluto, once believed to be the ninth planet, is discovered by the Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona, by astronomer Clyde W. Bach. Pretty amazing. Let's see, I think I have time for one more, and that would be more local. And on February 12, 1914, Port Angeles celebrated the arrival of electricity from the Elwha River hydroelectric project. It did come at a price. There were massive losses of salmon and steelhead during the construction, but then there was a demolition of a dam nearby, and within a few years, hundreds of thousands of salmon once again were able to run free from the mountains to the sea. That is courtesy of historylink.org. And the first one was uh, This Day in History, the History Channel. So if you love history, like I do, peruse these. You'll get lost in it. There's so many great things that they have, and, and that's I just strongly urge you to do so. So where are we at now? We'll move on now to our next topic coming up. We'll put some bumper music in, and then we'll come back with uh, the interview with... Uh, Michael Hebe in just a moment. Okay, so we have, um, as I mentioned earlier, former state senator, King County Superior Court judge, and founder of Justice, Judges for Justice, Mike Hebe. Over 3,000 felony convictions have been overturned, overturned in this country since the 1980s, and over 100 death penalty convictions that are absolutely overturned. They don't change because they decide to let the person live out their life in prison rather than putting them death or something, or they just let somebody out, you know, early because they're older, because they robbed a bank in 1952. No, these are ones that were wrongly convicted and they're released. I think it's staggering. So that's why I find it so interesting. And uh, the question I have is why? How is this possible in a country that prides itself on a fair justice system. The jury is in, and it is anything but fair, and in many cases, not very just. So let's pick up my interview with uh, Mike Heavey. How does this happen? The National Registry of Exonerations, which you can get if you Google it, maintained by the University of Michigan Law School, it's approaching 
3,000 exonerations. And that's just not people that are been released from prison. That's where some judges basically dismissed all charges against them. They're exonerated. At least 124 were on death row. How that happens essentially start with a shocking crime. And then it goes from there. You have a 18-year-old young girl, bright future, who is stabbed 14 times in her sleep and then sexually assaulted. How does that happen? That's what happened to Angie Dodge in 1996 in Idaho Falls, Idaho. You had a lot to do to getting the perpetrator at the time, or at least thought they were, found not guilty or actually exonerated. We were actively involved in that. Some people think we were the prime reason why Chris Tapp, who spent over 20 years in in prison, was released. And then eventually he was exonerated when they found the real killer. You laid out really well what is called the power tools of noble cause corruption. Can you describe what you mean by the uh, noble cause corruption? It's a big topic. (laughs) Canada had three egregious wrongful convictions in the 1990s. They studied it. And they came up with a leading cause of wrongful convictions. I think it is the primary cause. It's called tunnel vision. It's perverse byproduct of noble cause corruption. Police and prosecutors uh, engage in what is called noble cause corruption. And then the next question is, well, if there's no real evidence, how do you get a conviction? Well, that's what we call the five power tools of noble cause corruption. Often these cases start with a false confession and then a coarse confession. And another thing that happens is they feed this information, and that's wrongful, by the way, uh, to the press. And the press fuels the community's fear into anger at the defendant. And then there are dubious witnesses. And in the Chris Tapp Idaho case, there was uh, uh, the police woman by the name of Destiny Osborne claimed that Chris Tapp had talked about the murder. She now says the police coerced her into saying that at the trial. Often evidence, forensics, are ignored or manipulated. And in the Chris Tapp case, It was everybody knew that the male DNA left at the crime didn't match Chris Tapp. That's where I find it incredibly scary is that the DNA doesn't match, but they still go ahead with it. And and that kind of um, happened in the Dana Ireland case. We'll get to that. But nonetheless, when that happened, that's kind of unforgivable. And when I look at things like that, when people participate in that, my frustration there is like I would say, or partook in that sort of um, of manipulating the DNA or not using it. Penalty should be they served the time. That yeah, I would. I'd like to see that. The reason Canada studied wrongful convictions and how to prevent them is that they saw not only did they ruin the life of a, another human being by wrongfully convicting them, putting them in prison, uh, defaming them. Can you imagine Amanda Knox? I mean. A lot of the world thinks she killed her roommate. They still do. <laughs> and they still do. 
And I mean, people that are knowledgeable understand that she's totally innocent. But that, you know, she spent four years in an Italian prison. And uh, uh, how do you get back? Uh, you know, most of us are unremarkable. We go through life without any, and yet she get, becomes remarkable and she becomes known for something she didn't do and didn't have anything to do with. Amanda Knox is one of the most creative, loving, and responsible people I know. She's absolutely innocent. And if you ever get a chance to hear her speak in public, she's uh, an awesome public speaker. And there's also blind forensics in the power tools. The Norfolk Four, Four Sailors in Norfolk, Virginia. Central Park Five, although not murder, but the convictions for the five 15-year-olds, black kids in New York City. Point being is there's all these cases. Chris Tapp in Idaho. Obviously, Amanda and Raphael in Italy. The three guys that were convicted in Hawaii, they were all convicted of rape and murder, but none of them matched the male DNA left at the scene. When I was reviewing the Central Park Five, if there's an example of inflammatory media, it's there. You have the mayor of the city saying they're guilty, they're scum, they're this, or whatever words he used. I mean, this is incredible. I mean, that, as you saw in episode 12 uh, on our website at judgesforjustice.org, that was countrywide. Amanda Knox was worldwide. By the time you get to trial, whether it's just your community that's enraged against you but or the entire country or the trial world, you're convicted before you get to trial. It doesn't really matter if, there, if there's any evidence it seems. And one of the things back to what you were talking about in Canada that you had on your site is that Canada, you know, essentially has one jurisdiction throughout the country Whereas we have different, what, 3,000 different prosecutors. There's 3,143 counties in the United States or equivalents. Louisiana, they call them parishes. Each one has an elected prosecutor, a politician. And when they get a wrongful conviction, they're not really worried about, uh, in their midst, they're not really worried about how to prevent them in the future. Canada was able to step back and say, hey, let's learn from these huge mistakes. You know, it's like a, uh, it's like when a, a 737 crashes. We don't ignore it. We get the NTSB and we try to figure out what happened. Do we need to improve training? Do we need to improve the equipment? Whatever it is. But we've never done that in the United States for wrongful convictions. Now, what I want to do is uh, talk about Dana Iron a little bit. I had you on the radio show about three or four years ago. We were talking about that case in Hawaii, and there was a major breakthrough in that case, again, thanks to your efforts to make that happen. But describe again briefly, if you would, the Dana Ireland saga, the release of the individual or one of them that, again, when you went through the whole process, DNA not on the site of the murder, but then this man was in jail for, what, 20 years, uh, Mr. Schweitzer? Yes, about 23 years. It's uh, 1991, Dana Ireland is riding her bicycle on the big island of Hawaii, and she is run over, drugged under a motor vehicle for over 100 feet, picked up, taken to another location where she's sexually assaulted and left to die. She eventually dies of her... Uh, injuries. But again, a shocking crime. My God. 
23 year old young lady run over brutally murdered kidnapped sexually assaulted rape and for anyway suspicion for a number of reasons fell on three men frank pauline albert ian schweitzer and his younger brother sean schweitzer all three were innocent but it was a classic wrongful conviction on our website judgesforjustice.org the main thing on the homepage right now is our documentary, 14-episode documentary called Murder in Hawaii, Why Wrongful Convictions Happen. Essentially, if you go to our website, you can watch each of the 14 episodes. Most of them are pretty short, 11 minutes to 27 minutes. But they explain the case in detail, and uh, one of the innocent men was murdered in prison in uh, 2015, and the only one remaining prison was Albert Ian Schweitzer and on January 24th, uh, last January 24th, uh, 2023 he was uh, released and exonerated So pretty incredible overall um, when you look at a story like that and unfortunately there are many more of those my thanks to uh, Judge Michael Heavey for that information, we'll keep track of this as uh, he continues to try to exonerate various people who are wrongfully convicted. If you're interested in reviewing what we talked about today, click on to episode 12. That's specifically about why these type of of situations occur, wrongful convictions. He spends on episode 12 out of the 14-part series on that. If you want to watch the whole 14-part series, in addition to that, as he mentioned, all you need to do is Google judgesforjustice.org. You just received some startling news. You're going to need brain surgery. But the doctor also says your prospects for total recovery are excellent. The doctor is very confident with his prognosis. He's performed hundreds of similar surgeries during his career. Who would you choose, this doctor or another doctor who's never performed this type of surgery? If the doctor who's performed similar surgeries is your choice, then experience is important to you. That's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. Topics explored including public affairs, self-employment, travel, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. Welcome back to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, and along with Eric Ryder, we are here bringing you the afternoon show live. Uh, We still have some really good uh, content coming up uh, a little bit later. Uh, We have a woman I talked about earlier, and she uh, traveled, well, pretty much the world at the time, but took a real step out and tried to challenge herself and um, do something entirely different than what her life was happening happening at the time. So that's coming up in just a few moments. However, we have uh, Pat Cashman, who's joining us not live, but he's a Pat Cashman uh, fame almost live in Seattle, which ran for many years. And now he and Lisa Foster host Peculiar Podcast. But he has another little segment he calls Just Saying. So this is something he 
sits on a chair and just talks about various things. And today I want to um, have him relate a story about how to conduct an interview. And um, let's just take a listen and hear what Pat Cashman has to say. Hi there. You know, I've been privileged to be doing this little segment for a while now, but like anyone, I want to stretch a little bit. I want to show the management at Central Oregon Daily uh, a wider range of my capabilities, including my interviewing skills. In fact, I've just written a book, How to Conduct an Interview. I just got it back from the printer yesterday. There's a few problems. They misspelled the title and my name. Uh, so it's going to be a while before before it's on the shelves. But here is a book that is just out and making its way up the bestseller lists. It's called The Future of Central Oregon and How to Build It Smarter. And the co-authors are on the line with me right now. They are Dale W. Clark and Dean Cartmill. And first of all, welcome to you, Dale. Nice to be with you. And welcome to you, Dean. Uh, actually, Dean's in the other room. Oh. Yeah. Well, see, I'd like to have him on, too. Oh, okay. Since he co-authored the book with you. Okay, sure. Hang on a sec. Okay. I'll get him for you. Dean! Uh, we are about Dean! to speak to the co-authors of the new book, The Future of Central Oregon and How to Build It Smarter. Hi, this is Dean. Hi there. Hi there, Dean. Who's this? It, it's Pat Cashman from Central Oregon Daily doing uh -huh. an interview about your book. The Future of Central Oregon? Right. How to Build It Smarter? Yeah, that yeah. one. Yeah. Uh -huh. So do I have you both on now? Well, Dale said you want to talk to me. Look, I want, I want to talk to you both oh, okay. <laughs> at the same time because uh -huh. you both wrote the book, you see? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. So you want me to get Dale? Yeah. Okay. okay. Dale! Okay, hey, Dale! Uh, so I guess there's uh, <laughs> been a bit of confusion. But in a moment, we will have the duo that both collaborated on this book. Hi, this is Dale. Hi, Dale. Uh, this is Pat again from Central Oregon Daily. I remember, yeah. Good. Yeah. Uh -huh. I don't suppose Dean is also on with us. Uh, no. no, but I could go get him for you. No, if no, you want no, me no, to... no, 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 uh, no. Why don't you okay. just stay on with me? Would you okay. just stay there? Sure, sure. Okay? No, no problem. No right. problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I want to interview you about that book. What book? The Future of Central Oregon. And How to Build It Smarter? Yeah, smarter. Okay, great. What do you want to now, know? Now, in Chapter 3, uh, you outline some steps, and I... You know, actually, I didn't have anything to do with that chapter. Dean wrote that. Come on. Hang on. Dean! If you are just joining us, we are to attempting to interview the authors. Right now, there are yeah. two of them. Hi, this is Dean. Who's this? Same guy from earlier, man. Yeah, I thought I recognized your voice. Look, it sounds like maybe you guys have a landline there. Yep, yep, we sure do. So is there a second phone, you know, that somebody oh, yeah. else could get on in the house sure. or the office or wherever it is you are? Yep, yeah, 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 there can is. Can you swing yep. that? Yeah, we can definitely okay. do that. We've got a phone in the kitchen, the one in the front room. Okay, then. Yeah. You, um... Dean. Yeah. You, yep. Dean, stay mm -hmm. on that phone that you're on. Okay. And then yep. we'll have, um... Dale? Yeah, him. Mm -hmm. Have him get on the other phone, On see? the other phone. And then we can have yep. you both on at the same stinking time. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good idea. Okay, thanks. Hang on a second. Dale! Okay, so... Dale! Again, uh, perhaps if this works, we should be able to talk to the co-authors of the book, The Future of Central Oregon and How to Build It. Smarter. Okay, can you hear us? I hear you, Dean. Okay, great. And Dale, are you there too? Yep, I'm here. All right, so finally, I got you both on at the same time. <laughs> Fantastic. I don't know why this was so hard. I don't know what the hang up was. What, what the, the what, what was? Hang up. Okay. okay. 
Oh, for crying out loud. All right. Pat Cashman. <laughs> Again, he said what to do in an interview, what not to do. But anyhow, we, we've all Pat had Cashman guests like that, that over together. the years, haven't we? <laughs> Anything close to that ever happened to you? Yeah, a couple times. Yeah. <laughs> How okay. about you, Paul? Oh, yeah. There's There's <laughs> been a couple, especially the... I think the the times when you get to the point where you ask a question and there's that space of time and then you have to ask again or uh, they don't show up at all, you know, and especially a couple times live, that makes it a little difficult. But anyhow, Pat's done this long enough. Another great segment. And by the way, if you want to hear must, some more of these just saying, you can go to YouTube and just uh, input just saying, Pat Cashman. There's about a half a dozen more of those. So then again, thank you to Pat Cashman so much. And we'll be using more of his uh, segments as he's so graciously donating to my show. And again, look at his uh, or listen, and you can do both. Look or listen to Peculiar Podcast as well. All right. So we're coming up on another interview in just a moment. And uh, you're listening to Voices of Experience. All right, so back very quick. This is uh, Alicia Miranda, and she's the author of My What If I Did in My Year. And um, she took a year leave of absence from life, basically. Her husband and her children, she just said, I've got to go do this. And she took off for a big adventure. And during her sabbatical, she becomes a golfer, or excuse me, a gopher for a Broadway production that was short-lived, and she handles multi-million dollar paintings and a lot more. An interesting topic for those who want to take an adventure, whether it's a year or just six months, to listen to what she had to say. Alicia Miranda. What were you doing when you decided to take this adventure? So I was living in central London. I was mom to eight-year-old twins, a wonderful husband, and was CEO of a business that my husband and I had started together, um, consulting to some of the world's biggest companies and foundations on their philanthropy and giving and social impact. And I was kind of in this place where I was about to turn 40. I had checked off all of the items on my life success to-do list, and I just found myself really itching for something else. I kept asking myself, is this it? Is this all I'm going to do forever now? And why does this not make me happy? Why do I feel so sad? And then, of course, I felt horrendously guilty that, you know, I had so much and that I was not feeling happy with where I was. Um, And so really just kind of spinning a vicious cycle for a while until I landed on this idea of taking these mini sabbaticals from my job and going to explore the what ifs of my youth, all the jobs I always wanted to do when I was a kid and never got a chance to try. And that was going to be like the solution to all of my problems. So that's the plan I set. Okay. Where did you start then? What did you kind of go to the edge of the cliff and jump off and then start there? Or did you do a lot of planning before you decided to uh, go on this journey? That's such a great question, Paul, because I think when people see stories like this, they kind of assume, oh, you must have just been so brave and just kind of dove head first. And that is not at all me. I am a very risk averse person. 
I am a total planner. I have been my whole life. So, yeah, I mean, this was not one big mega change. It was sort of a lot of very small changes, one after the other after the other, set out to be these internships. I think I want to do about four or five throughout the year. The year, of course, I was planning to do this was 2020. So uh, the plan was thrown out the window relatively quickly, but in, in the grand plan. Because we're talking COVID here. That's break. about, excuse me, uh-huh. I didn't mean to interrupt, but exactly. that was COVID. All of a sudden, you're ready to do this, and this came your way. COVID here. Exactly. So, you know, I had everything laid out very, very neatly. It took me a lot of time to sort of line things up, figure out how to clear my schedule, to organize childcare, to actually, you know, apply for and get some of these internships which was really tough. Surprisingly, nobody wanted to hire an almost 40-year-old CEO to be their unpaid intern at their job. Um, but eventually, you know, I kept trying. I kept reaching out to people, and I got a few opportunities. So, yeah, I was a total planner. So let's talk about some of those experiences you had. What was your first uh, job or whatever, your in- first internship, and where did that go? And So the big dream that was kind of the driving force behind all of this was to experience what it was like to work on a musical, in musical theater. I had always loved musicals. Uh, As a fan, I had never done anything in that field, but I just was completely obsessed with the idea of being part of a musical production team, sitting in rehearsals, and, you know, basically offering to do anything that anybody wanted me to do in order to be able to have this experience. So through the dad of a friend of mine, He made a couple connections with me, and I got two incredible directors in New York, one that was working on mounting a new Broadway show that was supposed to open in the spring of 2020, and the other one, an off-Broadway show that was also opening in that same time period, to let me come and sort of join their rehearsals, see if I could make myself useful in some way, um, you know, sit in and experience and soak up and just kind of learn what it was like. So this was like the dream come true. And so I got on a plane to New York, said goodbye to my kids, said goodbye to my husband, and the plan was to come to New York for a month. And I left on February 29th, 2020. So if you recall what was happening around that time, and just a few short weeks later, you know, all the Broadway theaters closed down, followed by all the theaters, and that shutdown ended up going on for 18 months. But in that brief, beautiful two-week period that I got to be a theater intern, I was absolutely watching, listening, learning, absorbing, and then like trying really hard to make myself useful. I went out and got coffees for people and snacks. I filled up the water jug so people would always have water. I made cheese. I swept the floor. Um, I put chairs away. I put chairs back out in the morning. Doing a lot of the grunt work, but then you were seeing behind the scenes the preparation for the plays and things like that. So you got something from that, of course. I learned so much about the business, all the different things that go into running a theater production, things you would never think about. And I also got this amazing opportunity to actually learn you need to have a waste management contractor and there has to be somebody that's planning the opening night and someone doing your social media and sort of all of these pieces that I had never really thought about. And really, I think doing the grunt work is kind of the best way to learn about everything you are doing, a little bit of everything. And, you know, sometimes in some of those very seemingly mundane jobs, I think, is where you can learn the most. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more on that. What happened after that? I came home and was with my family. And then, you know, like everybody else, we were trying to make it through the days. We were homeschooling the kids. We were trying to figure out what was happening. You know, do we have to, like, spray our groceries with antibacterial spray? 
and, you know, trying to keep everything afloat in this incredibly difficult time. And I had my second internship lined up, perfectly planned. It was supposed to be in April of 2020. And I got an email through uh, that said, look, the office is closed. We have no idea when we're going to open back up. This was supposed to be in the art industry, a place I had always wanted to work. And it was going to be with Christie's, a big auction house. And so I sat around being depressed and like baking and eating a lot of baked goods for a while. And then I kind of came across a friend of mine who had been a fitness instructor. I had taken some classes with her in London. She had started her own fitness business. And there she was on Instagram doing classes from her living room. So I sent her an email and I said, look, I know this is crazy, but could I be your intern? I see that you're trying to do virtual fitness. I think I could be helpful. I would do anything you need me to do, which was kind of my common refrain to everybody. You know, could I please help? And so she very, very happily said yes. And so I spent the next month fitness intern. I did social media posts and I took dozens of classes at all kinds of virtual fitness studios. All right. So you did that for a while and you uh, obviously learned some things there. And then you had some other uh, things that you took on as well. How about some of those? So I did uh, manage myself a place in the art world. I worked for a contemporary art dealer in London. So uh, all that means is that he sells and buys very high-end paintings and sculptures. I'm talking like millions, if not tens of millions of dollars. Unbelievable pieces of art kind of changing hands. And Harry was an old friend of mine from a long time ago. He knew I was going to work hard to be surrounded by art. I was going to all these galleries. I had to pick things up and drop things off and try very, very hard not to drop priceless paintings, which I almost did once. Um, I had to figure out all of these new words and vocabularies. I felt like everybody was talking to me in French, and I don't speak French. I couldn't understand what anybody was saying. And so, you know, I was like on the back foot constantly, and I was doing anything that he asked me to do. Um, But I got the chance to learn, again, so much about the art industry, how it works, how people buy and sell art and make art, and what makes art art, and how you can have the audacity to charge so much money for like a banana taped to a wall or whatever it might be that you see. I went to go work at a hotel in Scotland, a hotel and restaurant on the Isle of Skye, a very uh, far northwest, very remote, rural, beautiful place, lots of mountains, kind of like Seattle. And uh, there they just put me on like a rotation. So like an intern, I was kind of trying out different parts of the hotel and restaurant business and doing everything they asked me to. So I was polishing silverware and folding napkins and serving food and checking people in. And I was so, so horribly bad at everything. I messed everything up constantly. I felt like all I did was apologize. Um, But I had a smile on my face. I tried really, really hard. I almost set myself on fire once, but I didn't actually set myself on fire. So I think it was a success, frankly, at the end of it. Yeah, well, I would say that's a pretty big success if you didn't set yourself on fire. What have you learned? What did you learn about this experience that you could impart on other people who are thinking the same type of way of wanting to do something like this? I learned that the things that I thought I could never do, all the can'ts and the shouldn'ts and the, you know, couldn't possibly ever, you know, a lot of those barriers were imagined barriers that I had put in place in my head. Obviously, leaping out of your comfort zone and doing something really different, you know, there are a lot of practical things in the way, and I'm certainly not suggesting everybody go do a year of internship. But, you know, I realized that there were so many things that I had stopped myself from doing because I just thought I couldn't do them or that it was too late to do them or my window of opportunity for them was closed. And so I really hope that people read this and, you know, they follow the lesson that I learned, which was it's not too late. Well, not too late at all. 
Alicia Miranda, and she's the author of a book called My What If Year. And you can just Google My What If Year and find out how you can get your copy. Coming up in just a moment will be the first voice of the Seattle Supersonics. Think about who that is. I had an interview with him now about 25 years ago, and I put this under Profiles of Experience. I'll be coming up in just a moment. Seattle's first pro team started in Seattle in the fall of 1967, the Seattle Supersonics. I can't tell you how excited as a young boy to have a pro team in Seattle, we had finally joined the big leagues. Of course, there were other major league level teams that have come and gone since then. Seattle Pilots came in 1969, gone in 1970. The Seattle Mariners, the Seahawks, the Storm, the Sounders, the Kraken, they've all come since that time. But the first voice in the region for pro sports was Bob Blackburn, and he was just referred to as The Voice. He called Sonic Games from 1967 to 1992 when he retired, maybe not so voluntarily, but that's a story for another day. He passed away in 2010. I had an interview with Bob Blackburn in 1997 in a segment that was called Profiles of Experience on Kixie. He came to the studio where we did this interview. We are very fortunate to be talking with Bob Blackburn. The name Bob Blackburn is synonymous with professional sports in Seattle. The Supersonics was Seattle's first professional sports franchise and began playing in the Seattle Center Coliseum during the season of 1967-1968. Therefore, the first professional pro sports announcer in Seattle was Bob Blackburn, who began broadcasting Sonic basketball from the very first game. 25 years and 2,325 games later, Bob retired from the Sonic microphone. How about your uh, looking at players? What would, uh, what, even not necessarily Sonics, any type of players that you're favorite over the years you were brought Well, it's, it's very difficult, to, again, to pick out favorite players because you start doing it with your own team and you're going to, to, you're going to miss Forget a lot of somebody, people. Forget somebody, right. Yeah, I, I mean, there, I there are certain guys, there are certain people that obviously stand out in your mind through the years. Lenny Wilkins stands out in my mind because of the class individual, because of his great talents as a player and his ultimately good talents as a coach. Gus Williams stands out in my mind as the guy who was perhaps the key leader with the Seattle Supersonics to their championship. So those, those are a couple of guys right there. And, of course, uh, Jack Sigma. Uh, I tell you, the members of the championship team, I have a soft spot in my heart for all of them because every time they have a reunion and get together, they always call up the old voice of the Sonics and invite him to participate. I didn't score a basket or get a rebound for that team, but I did their broadcast, and they still regard me as part of that team, and I think that's wonderful. Did you get a ring or something for the championship? Yeah, I see it right yeah, there. Yeah, it's wearing it right nice. there. They gave you that. That's 1979. That 1979. It has Blackburn and the Seattle Supersonics, their logo on one side, the NBA logo on the other. The top of the ring is in the form of a basketball, and it says World NBA World Champion. That's great. Did uh, you have, let's say, a fondest memory in broadcasting of all your games? If I were to go to fond memories or great memories, it would take a book. But obviously, I think, Paul, if I were to take the fondest memory, it has to be the instant when the buzzer sounded and Gus Williams threw the ball high in the air and the horn started honking out of the Northwest and the Sonics had won their first ever in NBA championship. Yeah, it was just a special euphoric feeling at that moment. But I have arrived. I have been the broadcaster, the radio TV broadcaster of 
a team that is now known as the not just the NBA champs, but really basically the world champions. They say it right on the ring here. Sure. And I think at that moment, there were, there were many other very pleasant moments of great instances of great plays that I remember, uh, but that has to be the top. I'd say a personal satisfaction for you was in 1970 was the year that you broadcast the NBA All-Star Game throughout 70, the world? 74, we did the NBA All-Star okay. Game. Well, actually, I, I had done some worldwide broadcast, or, or at least a, a major broadcast on NBC prior to that, back in the late 60s when Oregon State played in the football, uh, the Rose Bowl football game against Michigan. I did the uh, broadcast for NBC at that time, which went coast to coast and worldwide. So I haven't done a lot of what you'd call national-type broadcasting, but... Uh, you have an incident uh, in broadcasting that wasn't so pleasant. There have been a lot of times when I was the sonic announcer that I was also my own engineer. And I'll never forget the time that one time somebody in Chicago, we were broadcasting on the sidelines, and somebody reached down and they had the, they, they had the lines, the electric lines going out from the side. And if some people in the stands could reach down. Somebody reached down and pulled the plug out. Well, I didn't realize where that plug was. And here I am trying to broadcast, and I finally, I'm talking into a dead mic. Everything, everything has gone dead. And I'm talking into a dead mic. Is this in the middle of a game or just oh, yeah, prior this is to? during play-by-play. Play. Play this by is play. during play-by-play. Okay. Play. And right. the next thing, I got a call, you're off the air. Now I have to, as the engineer, I have to go find out what's wrong. So I'm in a panic situation there for a moment. I mean, the moments like that used to be, I think that's one of the moments, one of the times that led to my ultimate heart surgery in 83, frankly. That kind of did it. That and paying for six, six kids through 26 years of college. That kind of adds up. <laughs> well, speaking about salaries and money, uh, one player's salary today is the entire team, 12-man team of the Supersonics in 1967. Twice as much as the entire team in the 67 season. Exactly. We hear a lot about that's destroying the sport or it's not good for the sport or whatever. What's your feeling on that? Well, to me, it ultimately is going to destroy the sport. I, I hate to say it. I, I, I don't care what sport it is. But to me, the ticket prices for going to ball games now for all sports are getting so far out of reach of the common man. And to me, the common person, the average person, the blue-collar worker has been the person who has supported sports so well in the stands during the years. And now, because of all of the executive boxes, the sky boxes, what have you, it's becoming a corporate-type participation. You don't see the same Sonic fans out there that you saw 25 years ago, for, or 28 years ago, when the, when the team started. It, sure. It's a lot different thing, and ultimately, ultimately, it has to take its toll, as far as I'm concerned. The golden goose uh, can only lay so many golden eggs, and, and I think that it has to stop one of these days. I tell you what it's going to stop, too, and I think baseball is going to be the first one to see it when some teams go bankrupt. And that's The Voice, Bob Blackburn. My thanks again to Bob Blackburn for that interview. I still enjoy listening to that. Again, he had the voice. But more than that, you can hear the love he had for the game itself. And I do believe he just really enjoyed people. On a personal note, I attended Newport High School in Bellevue, where the Blackburn family, many of them went to school there, and Beth Blackburn was in my class, a delightful person, because she came from such a delightful family. One other note, he mentioned the average guy at the end of the interview not being able to afford going to an NBA game. I did a quick check. The average cost of the price of a ticket when he said that was about $35. Today, $211. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, and uh, boy, that was interesting listening to that interview again. Again, that was about 25 years ago. Bob Blackburn, still think he 
was one of the best, if not the best voices of all time in uh, sports history. I really loved listening to his voice during that time frame. So my name is Paul Casey, your host. Eric Ryder is with me again. And thank you again, Eric, for all that you do. Eric Crema will be back next week, and he'll be talking about his vacation in Hawaii. I talked to him this morning, as I mentioned at the beginning. He loved it, and he's going to review his trip to, I think he was in, um, let me see, Maui and Oahu. So we'll talk about both those islands. Any comments you have about what you heard today, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. Let us know what you like about the show, what you would like to hear. If you'd like to make a comment about something you heard today, you can also leave that message too, and we'll get it on the air. That's 425-653-1166. Excuse me, Now, Voices of Experience, we talk about uh, public affairs, travel, fitness, education, history, current events, and entrepreneurship. We air on Kixie Wednesdays at 3 p.m. If you're listening, you probably know that. And it is simulcast with Hubbard's sister station, KKNW 1150. And Voices of Experience is rebroadcast on Kixie only Sunday mornings. Next week, Dean Regas. He wrote a book, and it's called 1,000 Facts About Space. The largest star is almost 3.7 excuse me, 3.7 billion times larger than the sun. Now, I only thought it was 3.6 billion, but his research is different from mine. But uh, no, I mean, think about that for a moment. You look at the sun and then think there's something out there 3.7 billion times bigger. I just can't wrap my head around that one. And will humans be walking on the moon in 2024? He thinks so. And I asked him why. So all that's next week. Quote of the week, be fair, be honest, and the truth will take care of itself. Legendary and the late broadcaster, Keith Jackson. All right, so now for this week's timeless classic. This one topped the charts in the United Kingdom, but performed very poorly in the United States. And that's because the president of ABC Records at the time, Larry Newton, disliked the song and refused to promote it. But after it was heard on the film, Good Morning Vietnam, it was re-released as a single in 1988, and it became a timeless classic, and that is no exaggeration. Originally released in 1967, Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World. I see trees of green Red roses too I see them blue For me and you And I think to myself What a wonderful world I see skies of blue And clouds of white the bright blessed day, the dark sacred night, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. The colors of the rainbow, so pretty in the sky, 
Also on the faces of people going by, I see friends shaking hands, saying how do you do? They're really saying I love you. I hear babies cry. I watch them grow. They learn much more. I'll never know And I think to myself What a wonderful world Yes, I think to myself What a wonderful When a flock of geese knocked out two engines on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 right after takeoff from LaGuardia Airport, who would you want in the cockpit? Captain Sully or a pilot on their maiden flight? If Captain Sully was your choice, then experience is important to you. And that's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. A variety of topics are explored, including local and national public affairs, self-employment, travel, lifestyles, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com.